Hi, podcasting from New York. They say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is Pushing Boundaries. Most of today's commentary on complex social issues is binary, unproductive, and flat-out lazy. With this podcast, I'm looking to hopefully elevate these conversations, and as a lifelong educator, hopefully learn a few things along with you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. All right, all right. So welcome to another episode of Pushing Boundaries. So we have, we're on part three of co-parenting and we had to, you know, we had to lift it up a notch and we had to bring in some experts in here, the big guns in here today. You know, Keisha and Garcia started us off uh, on part one and part two with their personal stories. One story didn't work out in terms of uh, um, co-parenting and still in a pro- there's a process there. The other, the other story is that they started correctly from the beginning in terms of, well, not correctly, but they started with co-parenting, the concept of co-parenting from the beginning. Uh, she's still trying to work that out. Um, and so today we just want to get some feedback f- from the experts in terms of, you know, how do we do it? You know, how do we, how do we, what's the best practice here? And, and so what, what are some of the pitfalls that we can avoid if we find ways to cooperate with one another? Now, when we don't cooperate, it costs a lot of money, right? Um, and I just wanted to say that the lawyer fee could be 250 to $500 an hour. Mediation could cost you $150 to $400 an hour. A psych eval could cost you $10,000 and more. An eval, a rebuttal can cost you $7,500. An accountant could cost you $8,500. Expert witnesses could cost you $7,500 a day. Forensics could cost you $15,000. A paralegal could cost you $12,000. A legal secretary could cost you $2,500. An investigator could cost you $15,000. Filing fees, $250 per uh, piece of document. Parking, $20. Lunch, $10. Fax, $75. Emails, $120. Printing, $480. Copies, $280. Travel expense, $360 by by the time you go through this process. So let me help you. Let me try to help you today. I have two guests here. I have uh, Wayne, Aline, and I have Denise Sila. And they're both uh, lawyers and they have their own practices and they're really here to offer their expert, expert advice on what to do and what not to do. We're gonna go through a series of questions and really um, mm-hmm. to build this, this content for you and really just build some strong takeaways that you can use in your lives. And I hope you know it'll be meaningful for you and I'm sure it'll be meaningful for you. I know that they have some jewels to offer us today and we're gonna get involved with it. So Wayne and Lee, I guess you could, at first you can go and you can announce you know, your, your practice and what you do. Okay, so um, as you stated, my name is Wayne Aline. Uh, my practice is um, out of out of Brooklyn, although I have a Manhattan address, I, I, I primarily um, practice out of Brooklyn Family Court, Brooklyn Supreme Court, um, and of course all the surrounding boundaries, um, or I should say surrounding boroughs. Um, I am a member of the the 18B panel um, in Brooklyn, uh, which covers. I should probably change it. I'm a member of the 18B panel in the second department, which includes Brooklyn, it includes Queens, it includes Nassau, it includes Suffolk and, and, a, and a few other um, counties. Um, but primarily I practice out of Brooklyn. And of course I'm a, a solo um, private practitioner where I have um, a caseload of private clients as well. 
I consider all of them uh, private clients, but a lot of times people might refer to um, themselves if they've retained me as having a paid lawyer, mm. as opposed to one who was appointed by the court. Okay. But um, practically speaking, from the perspective that I practice from, and, and I'm sure Ms. Silas will, will kind of echo this, uh, we consider all of them private clients um, because they're all demanding. <laughs> so, oh, I get it. Yeah, they're all demanding. Thank you. Thank you. And rightly so. Rightly Listen, so. thank you for being here. You're welcome. Denise. Um, hi, so yes, my name is Denise Seiler. Um, I am also a member of the ACB panel um, in the second department, um, practicing primarily in Brooklyn. Um, I also have my own practice, I'm also based out of Brooklyn, but I do serve the outer boroughs as well. Um, and I do do some criminal litigation as well. So you, okay, so you got it like almost an open format. You kind of can touch a little bit of everything. Yes. So let me, let me ask you, I mean, you know, why, why, why did you choose to be this type of lawyer, family lawyer? Why, why, why family law? Um, Denise, you want to go first? You want me? You can go first. Um, that's a, you know, I, I don't know that I chose this route so much as um, it kind of chose me. Um, my, I, I started out my career uh, in, in family law. At that time, I was doing um, uh, primarily child support litigation for the Department of Social Services. Um, and in that, uh, in that role, what I was doing was establishing, um, I, I don't want to say establishing child support actions. The first thing we would do would be to try to establish um, the legal obligation of the non-custodial parent. Nine times out of 10, the non-custodial parent was, was a man. Um, when, he, when he was involved in the Department of Social Services, the uh, non-custodial parent was receiving funds in the forms of cash, food stamps, sometimes housing benefits from the city of New York or welfare. Um, because the, uh, the uh, money that the person was receiving was governmental assistance, that person sometimes unwittingly signed over their rights to collect support from the non-custodial parent from the, to the Department of Social Services. Wow. And once they did that, that empowered the Department of Social Services to initiate a child support action. Usually it didn't start out as a child support action. It started out sometimes as a paternity action or a support after acknowledgement action. Um, and anything I'm missing, um, um, Denise will pick it up. Uh, but that's the way it would start. So, the, you know, the gentleman will come in the court or the, the woman will come in the court wanting to know why they're there because they've been given the woman money. Um, Obviously, she's also been collecting money from, um, the, you know, HRA or welfare, or whatever you want to call them. Um, so it's a, it's usually a surprise to 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 that person. Sometimes it's a, it's a surprise to the um, the uh, what we call the assignor because she's the one who assigned her rights. Hmm. Um, so what would happen is we'd establish the fact that this person is indeed the father, and once it was established that he was the father. Um, the next uh, 
thing that needed to be established was um, whether or not he worked and how are we going to recoup this money um, that is being paid out on behalf of um, the Department of Social Services. So that's kind of how I got started um, in, in family law. From there, I went to um, the Brooklyn DA's office and practiced criminal law. Um, and there, you know, I was involved in the prosecution of both felonies and misdemeanors. Um, obviously, that involved trials. Um, so I've had quite a few um, felony jury trials. Denise has had quite a few felony jury trials. So for a time, that was my heart. That's where, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, when I left that office, I went to um, uh, private practice working for um, an insurance company doing, um, at that time, no fault litigation. It's not what I wanted to do, but uh, it was substantially more than what I was making at the DA's office. Mm. So I kind of sold myself, <laughs> prostituted myself in that way because it's something that I never really wanted to do, never mm. really enjoyed doing it. Mm. Um, Fortunately, they were of the same mind. And eventually we, we agreed to separate. Um, and that's how I found my way to the 18B panel, um, both the criminal and the, um, the family court panel. Mm. But once I got involved with the family court panel, um, there was so much work um, that it just took all of my time and all of my attention. And, you know, that was back in 2000 something. And I've been doing it ever since. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's how I, that's, that's how I got there. And I, I think what keeps me um, doing it is because, and I say, you know, humbly, I say this, I think I've kind of um, found a niche with managing personalities mm. um, because on top of, the law, what you find, especially uh, with families in crisis, is that it requires managing personalities. There's so many moving parts. And I'm not just talking about the litigants. It could be the judges, the referees, the support magistrates, the clerks, the officers, um, you know, any, any and everybody who could potentially impact um, the outcome of the proceedings on behalf of your client. And mm -hmm. In family court, that can literally be anybody. Your client could have um, uh, a run-in with a court officer and that, that run-in will carry over into the proceedings. Wow. Because the court officer might say something to the clerk. The clerk might say something to the judge. So now your client walks in and the judge is looking at them and studying them and adopting kind of the narrative that's been put in their head from somebody who might have bumped into them out in the hall and caught them on a bad day. Mm. And now an impression is, has been formed. And that's on top of all the other um, nonverbal things um, that, that occur when, whenever, you, whenever a person meets a stranger. So you, you have issues of race that's, that's involved. You have issues of culture, you have issues of sex, you have issues of um, sexuality, mm -hmm. um, so many things. And because judges and everyone else are only human, 
um, whatever stereotypes are ingrained in their head, um, boom, you walked in and now their minds are, are, are processing a million things an hour, you know, as they consider you. So I'll let Denise take over because I can, I can go. How, how did you get in this work? <laughs> um, so my path is similar to Wayne's. I also did um, child support litigation for HRA. Um, and I just wanted to add something that he, what he, what he touched on is that oftentimes the assignor or the person that is receiving um, the benefits are really not, you know, some people look at them as though, oh, you're trying to beat the system because you're getting money from HRA and then now you're trying to collect from the father, but it's not the case. Like in order for them to get benefits, they have to assign their rights to child support to HRA. So even when they try to come in and say they don't know who the father is, that's a problem for them because that's part of their application. Mm. So when they come in, when they have to, you know, divulge, and then oftentimes the father may be on the birth certificate. Um, so when they have to divulge that information, that person is brought into court. HRA actually generates the petition. If the person is not on the birth certificate in order to collect child support, they have to be named the legal father. So they initiate a paternity petition in order to be able to collect the funds. So um, there is that stigma sometimes with, um, the, the, as Wayne said, the ass ignores as though, you know, they go in trying to beat the system and trying to take the money from this man. But that's not the case. Unfortunately, if they want their rent paid or if they want cash benefits, they have to assign their rights to child support over to HRA because HRA is, is doing, is, 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 is paying their rent, is giving them food stamps, is giving them cash. Mm. So that, you know, so I just wanted to make that sort of clear. Um, and then I did transition over to the DA's office. I was there for a while. Um, I, I, I went to the rank of deputy bureau chief to one of the, um, one of the busier precincts. And then I just got to the point where I was just a little disenchanted with the office. One um, did have to do with um, the pay and just the monotony of, you know, prosecuting the same people. Um, and so when I transitioned into family court, I was actually transitioning. I transitioned into family court to the 18B panel, but with the eye on juvenile delinquency cases. That's what I thought that I would be handling most. Um, but once I got on the panel, um, you you have a plethora of cases and most of them are not the um, juvenile delinquency cases. They are the neglect cases and the custody cases. And that's when I became exposed to uh, custody cases and neglect cases and really got a different education in terms of um, how these different agencies interact, especially with our community. Um, especially like with neglect cases, um, a lot of those cases are cases with like corporal punishment. And again, it's a cultural thing because most of us, that's how we were raised. If you got out of line, you, you get wet, right? right? But um, that's not a thing. Even though you, even though you can within reason um, use corporal punishment, it doesn't seem that, that when ACS brings these petitions that they're gauging whether or not it was excessive. Like sometimes you'll hear, oh, this person, the child got, got hit and they had a bruise to the face, but it may be like a whelp, you know, or a whelp from, you know, belt when you get hit. Again, it's cultural differences because I'm not saying that it's right that children should get beat with belts, but unfortunately that's something that's 
sort of handed down in our communities. Like, you know, you get out of line, you get ripped with a belt, you get hit with your hand. Um, and so that is a lot of what brings us to um, the attention of these um, this different agencies. And so um, that's where I started to get more experience and become more familiar with neglect cases and custody cases. So that is how I came to, um, to this sort of work. And it sort of opened my eyes um, to how you really should try to stay out of family court in terms of trying to, um, especially when it comes to custody and visitation, because you are subjecting yourself to people. You might have a referee that doesn't even have much experience as a parent. Um, you may be dealing with somebody that's dealing with cult different culture than you. And now you're leaving that person in charge of deciding how much time you're going to spend with your child, Is it, you know, when you're going to have vacation. So, um, you know, it really opened my eyes to how vulnerable we can be once we're before somebody else that's going to make those personal decisions in our lives. Hmm. Wow. That's a, so I, let me give you, I got a dictionary moment. Dictionary moment. We're going to pause. What is 18B? Okay. Okay. So it's, 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 it's called this the Article 18B count, County Law. And it's the law that, um, that, decide, that determines how you can be appointed a lawyer. So if you, have, if, if you meet certain income levels, then the court can appoint an attorney for you but you have to meet, you're supposed to meet the income levels before the, the attorney is appointed to you. And that can be, that, that happens in family court as well as criminal court. So essentially, so essentially the 18B is a panel that's, that's created by the courts, that's paid by the court too, to service clients who needs- Yeah, depending, right? Because it, it depends. Some is paid by the state, some is paid by the city, but the client doesn't pay. Okay, okay, all right. Thank you. That's a good start. And just to bring it all home um, in terms of what we're talking about today, um, when you look at the situation that Denise was talking about, that I was talking about, involving the HRA, the, the mother or the, the gentleman being the assigner, when they leave court, most of the time the conversations are, why the F you got me down here? Why you put this on me? Right. Stuff like that. Yeah. And now there is dissension mm -hmm. um, in that relationship. It might have already been dissension, but it adds another layer of it because now um, they feel, uh, and probably both parties feel a little bit like it. Now they're, they're kind of wrapped up and caught up in this web. Right. So sometimes what happens when a person finds out he, that he or she has to pay X amount of dollars per week, per month, you know, uh, bi-weekly, uh, they'll leave that court and they'll go right down to the clerk's office and file for custody. Mm, right. Their belief is that if I get custody, then I don't have to pay child support to these people. Right. right? So um, when she gets served or he gets served with a custody petition, uh, the next thing that they want to do and sometimes, uh, let me let me just keep it simple. The next thing that they want to do, they want to do the same thing. It's a counter suit. Right. And sometimes yeah. people ramp it up another step. They get home. They pick up the phone. They call 
ACS or they, they you know, they, they might call the 911 system, whatever. You know, I think my mother, my, my mother, my, my baby mother's suicidal. And I think she might be over there hurting my children. Mm. Now you got an investigation. Yeah, just like that. Now you're caught up in the web. Yeah. And the, and the calls can come from anybody. So they often don't necessarily come from the non-custodial parent. It might come from the non-custodial parent's girl or wife or her, her, her man, her new man or her, her husband, whatever. Anybody can make the call. You might go home and tell your, your, your mother about what's going on and she might make the call. Wow. But the, the, the most important thing is on top of the situation that they, they have going on um, with the child support, now they've kind of gotten sucked up into um, potentially other matters which are much more serious. So let me, let me, let me jump in again. Dictionary moment, HRA. What is HRA? Oh, Human Resource Administration. Okay, got it. Human Resource. All right, so let's, let's move this forward. Um, the pandemic, I'm sure it created upheaval for family court and all. Um, and, you know, people having access and trying to see a mediator or a judge and just trying to get their processes complete. Um, how would now post pandemic, how would you describe the state of family court in New York City today? Well, uh, it, I mean, it's, I mean, it is functioning. Um, family court is still functioning. The building is closed. But what they have done is um, the appearances are virtual. Um, they are starting to catch up with a lot of the a lot of the cases that were um, were stalled because of the pandemic and the court's closure. So um, they're even starting to do hearings via virtual um, virtually. How long is I mean how 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 backed up are they though? I mean in terms of if you if you had a new case a couple of weeks ago, how much time are you thinking in terms of seeing a judge? Oh well. One is the issue of filing new cases. I think mm -hmm. that they might be um, just now accepting um, new filings, but I don't know that they're actually calendaring these new mm -hmm. filings. So during the pandemic, what was happening, in some ways it was good, some ways it was bad, is that um, unless it was an emergency, people just had to figure it out. Mm. They almost had to, they almost had full force co-parenting. Co um, uh, in, in situations that was, weren't really that serious to begin with, right? Um, you know, because a lot of times people file uh, cases for custody visitation um, uh, based off some emotional trauma or some emotional event that happened. And just like most things, when you have time and some separation between the incident um, and your current situation, um, you know, it starts to put things in perspective. So mm. for a lot of cases, that's what happened. Um, so I've had instances where um, there were cases that were very um, hostile. And mm. suddenly, I haven't seen this person since, let's say maybe January 2020. And here it is, May 2021, first time they were on the calendar talking about the withdrawing the case. Like, you know, what happened? Why are you withdrawing? Oh, we were able to work things out and blah, 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 blah. So that's that's a good situation. Right. Um, other situations um, that generally create, uh, create um, what do you call it, emergencies, are when someone is just outright refusing 
um, to produce the child and they are using uh, or they were using COVID-19 as the the basis. Hmm. I can't comply with this this court's order um, because it's not safe. Um, hmm. You know, he goes out and parties, she goes out and parties. Right. Um, they, they're not um, uh, sheltering in place. Right. Um, they're lying about this or lying about that because so-and-so saw them over here or saw them over there. And now they don't want to produce the child for visitation. Mm. That will drive the other parent to family court to file an emergency, um, either a writ or order to show cause to try to bring the case before the court immediately. Mm. And those are the more troublesome cases. Um, but I can't say um, that happened with the majority of cases in family. I mean, we're literally talking about, I would imagine thousands of filings <laughs> Uh, in family court, you know, a month when everything was open and operational. Um, so in terms of the emergencies, certainly the volume is nothing like that. Nothing like that. Most of the emergencies that we're dealing with are dealing with abuse, neglect, um, juvenile delinquency, things of that matter. Things of that matter. So let me ask you, as, 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 as families are waiting for their court dates, how should our co-parents follow existing orders plan custodial visits and share expenses while families are under quarantine. So everyone hasn't returned to work yet. Some people are still working from home remotely. How should they deal at this point? Well, with respect to being able to come to court, again, they, they are able to do filings. I have had um, cases that have been filed um, since, the fi since the court has been open for filings um, and they have been heard within a couple of months before the initial, um, initial appearance. So I know that those things are happening, but now in terms of, so, and then if they already, when you're asking about um, them waiting for the court to open up, are these people that have cases that are already on the calendar or have not filed yet? Or have filed and just haven't gotten any response from the courts. Okay, because um, like I said, I know in Brooklyn, like most of the cases are, they're at a point now where most of the cases have been, we've sort of passed that point where nothing's happening and so they if they i mean they should be reaching out to the attorneys at this point if they're not if they don't have a date to come back because at least i know in brooklyn most of the cases are are, are sort of gotten generated back um on 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 the calendar so mm -hmm. we're not really at at that point like we were like last year this time where nothing was going on nothing was moving right right yeah so what, what a person should definitely do um, if they're in a situation where their case um, hasn't gotten any attention, they should definitely call the, the clerk's office. Um, it's a number that they can Google. I, I couldn't tell you the number off the top of my head, but they should call the clerk's office and, and um, you know, bring it to their, the, the clerk of the court's attention. And, and generally what happens from there is that they will, they will put it on a referee's calendar. They'll put it on a judge's calendar. Um, and that will generate the attention of the judge, of the referee, um, of the support magistrate, uh, who will then have to round up the attorneys and um, get dates for which this matter can be heard virtually. Mm. Right? So it's one of those situations where um, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Okay. So saying anything, um, and no one knows that this problem exists, then 
you know, you're, you're just waiting for something to happen where it might not happen. Wow. Um, or certainly not, you know, within the time that you would like it to happen. The so other, ask, oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let me ask you. So with the federal disaster relief, like the, you know, the money that came from the federal government um, down to people's stipends and things like that, how does that affect child support? Income. Income. It's all income. So does it count as as an as um an increase in income? Hmm. Um. The only thing I don't know that it would be an increase in income only because they're usually getting it to replace the the income that they're not getting. So I don't know if it would be an increase if they lost if they lost wages and this stipend is replacing it. So that that would depend on on what their income is. So. The stipends were large, though, right? So maybe it was larger than what they were typically getting paid. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me right, give, so that, let me, that would give you a scenario. Right, so that would depend. Mm-hmm. So I, I've had scenarios where people have filed modifications. And they filed modifications saying that they had lost their jobs. And um, that they were now collecting unemployment. So what a lot of people were doing was they would only claim or reveal that they were receiving money um, from the state. Um, but because, you know, the, the sport magistrates are there every day, uh, you're not really going to get over on them with something like that. Well, they'll say, well, what about the federal um, money? And sometimes it turned out that the person was actually making more money right. um, than they had prior to the pandemic. So this situation in which they were, were, were seeking um, a modification um, or a suspension of their child support award, one, didn't work out that way. Mm. Um, two, painted you in a negative light um, uh, in front of the support magistrate. Certainly painted you in a negative light in front of the non-custodial parent who is now thinking about filing for an increase <laughs> of child support. Right. Um, it it right. kind of set off a whole avalanche of, of issues. Mm. So, you know, um, uh, I know certainly with cases that I've had to deal with, with violations of child support orders where um, people haven't been paying their support orders for, for some time and the mother, you know, files something to have this person incarcerated or have the order enforced. Um, that's kind of some of the stuff that, that comes out where he says, yeah, I'm not working. Well, where were you working? I was working, you know, X, Y, and Z. Are you collecting um, unemployment? Yeah, yeah, but I'm only getting this amount. I'm only getting two fifty. Well, what about the um, the federal that everybody's getting? Are, are you not getting that? Um, and then that's that, that's how that whole thing balloons. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some instances, those those were taken. Yeah, those, those, yeah in some instances, those stimulus checks were taken. From people who were in behind, were behind in their child support. Yeah, yeah. It, it was gone. It was gone. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you definitely had a, the situation with the stimulus of te- uh, checks being checks being um, seized, but those people who were collecting that extra six hundred dollars a week, that's mm-hmm. that is income. Mm-hmm. That is income. That's not. Um, there's nothing free. Right, I think we established that when we were talking about the money that's being collected from welfare. It right. is free money, but it's not free money. It's not free. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, so let's, it's, let's segue into let's go let's go to court. 
let's go to court. So we we've done, you know, post pandemic, you know, what what you know what's happening with the courts and where they are and, and trying to get back to where we need to be. And then now well, let's let's go, let's let's remove the pandemic and let's go to court. And so um this this mother and father decided that they're gonna do this battle. They've signed mm-hmm. up. Now they've signed up with the intention of doing maybe uh, shared custody and co-parenting. That was the intention. So my first question is, they're walking into the court and, you know, you know, I mean, when you walk into court, some people go with shirt and tie, some people go with a, a tank top and some jeans. I don't even know if they let you in with a tank top, but a t-shirt and some jeans or some shorts and some sandals. Uh, some people were going there with purple hair and 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 uh, nose rings and tattoos and all kind of things happening in presentation, right? So all these things, people are coming in as they naturally are because they have right. no um, familiarity with the family court and what that process is like. They're coming off the street into this environment and they're trying to have this deal be, be made in their, on their behalf. So my question is, are there biases between men and women in family court decisions? And what happened to blind justice? Hmm. Um, okay, so it's that's kind of look. I that kind of loaded, but um, I'll go with. I'll start with the end of your question with respect to biases. I really think that that depends on. Um, I don't think that that's a, um, it's something that that just can be like a blanket statement to say um, that all because you have different, like you said, you have different judges, different referees, people coming from different backgrounds and having different perspectives. So yeah, you might go before some, uh, you know, one judge and they'll say, oh, that person is, is you know, more friendly towards men or, you know, um, is, is gonna be more favorable, favorable to men. You might have somebody that say that she's gonna be more favorable to women. So I don't know that it's like a blanket statement in terms of are there biases? Um, um, with respect to, and then I guess I'm I just, maybe I need this to be more specific in terms of, um, because I don't know that you can say that there's definitely a bias against men or a bias against women. Um, I think it, do, it does depend upon the jurist. I think it depends upon the situation because um, I noticed when you, when, you, when you started, you said, well, they go in and they intend to co-parent, but when they go in, they file the petition. So usually when they go in for that with that petition, that petition didn't say we want to co-parent. That mm. petition says, I want custody. I want sole custody because um, I've been taking care of the child their whole life. The father doesn't give any money. Um, so I want full custody. So mm. they don't walk in the door saying they want to co-parent. They will, when they're walking in the door, there's a petition and they're asking for relief. And usually somebody is asking for something, you know, for, you know, for custody. Um, and again, it depends, it, it really depends on the facts. And I think it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, you know, they're biased against men or biased against women without knowing what the underlying facts are. So I think that, that is, that's, that's an important factor um, to sort of look at. So when you're talking about their coming in, is it, you know, are they biased if it's the, if it's the father coming in asking for custody? Um, is, is that what you're asking? Like, is, you know, are biases if the father comes in to ask for custody? Is it less likely that he gets it? So that's what I guess I need clarity in terms of 
what you talk yeah, about I, in terms of bias. Yeah, can, I'll connect it to what Wade was saying earlier when he was talking about there was an interaction with one person with the court officer, which changed mm-hmm. the lens in terms of how they would view for the rest of this 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 uh, battle in the court. So, right. you know, um, I guess, you know, because, you know, I had some experience with family court and I was wondering if I needed to come in with a shirt and tie or a polo mm-hmm. and khakis, or did I need it because I because I was a, a, a person of 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 power and, and had finances, should I have played that down in the court? I didn't want to come in too strong with a shirt and a tie and a suit. You know, like what was the what was the leverage areas in terms of what I look like in presentation starting the, the fight, right? Or starting this this okay. you know, without triggering anybody's bias, right? So, you know, um what I saw and what I saw in the court was there was, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of arguing, there was a lot of fighting and 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 emotional trauma going on. And 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 distress, right? And you could <laughs> see distress, right, on on faces. Right. And right. it was there was a lot of tension and, and pressure. And so that's going into court. But I'm coming in reserved, emotionally contained, you know, um, professional. But does that look right. like this guy has it together, you know, we need to help, you know what I mean? So, you know what I mean? So, and, and that's okay. just, that's, that's my that's my scenario, but I saw a lot of other scenarios that were coming in, in terms of how people looked, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know what their experiences was in the courtroom, or, you know, when they went through those doors, but, you know, right. I know that, you know, it, it was just, when they came out with decisions, they were like crying, and then it was like, oh, and it was, all kind of things were happening. Right. But it was something to do with the interpretation of people based on not even a word out of their mouth. Now, I do I do think that demeanor plays an, an important part, um, as I think it would in any, you know, in any situation. So even when you refer to uh, the situation that Wayne talked about in terms of them observing this individual's, um, you know, demeanor with the court officer, depending on what that demeanor is, I think that it is reflective because if you, when you start talking about, um, you know, when they're, like I said, when, I, when these people are filling out petitions, they're making allegations against the other person. Right. So if, if I brought a petition in against Mr. X and I said, listen, I want custody because Mr. X has a temper. I'm afraid of Mr. X. The child is afraid of Mr. X. And then Mr. X gets in the courtroom and he's getting into an altercation with the court officer then, or he's very aggressive when, and I know I hate to use the word aggressive because it's like, oh, so the black man got to be aggressive. But I'm just saying that if this is demeanor, if this, if this is demeanor that you're reflecting, then yes, somebody's going to take that that into account to say, oh, so you know. So I do think that demeanor is important, you know, in terms of how you you. I don't know if the dress is necessarily a thing because in family court, unfortunately, as most of the litigants. Most litigants don't come in in a shirt and tie. So, but I do think that demeanor is is very important. Um, Wayne, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I would I would definitely agree with that. Um, I, I would definitely say Brooklyn, probably the Bronx, um, probably Queens is, is going to be somewhat unique um, in a lot of ways because I think the judges are much more accepting of almost a come as you are. You go out to Suffolk County, and remember, there's 62 counties in, in New York. Um, so you go out to six, uh, Suffolk County, uh, it, it's nothing to see the litigants in a shirt and tie. 
because there's a different level usually of education, there's a different um, uh, level of expectation of what they can expect to receive. Um, there's certainly a different hue within the courtroom all the way around. Um, there are places when I walk in, uh, in Suffolk and Nassau County, um, where I, I think that I'm generally looked at and generally received as a litigant, <laughs> right? So I'll, I'll come in a, you know, a suit, I'll walk right in the courtroom, something that I, you know, I'll do in Brooklyn um, easily before the case is called uh, because, you know, attorneys are generally allowed inside. And immediately when I walk in, I have people running towards me. Mm. What are you doing here? Oh, you have to wait outside, sir. You know, that type of stuff. Mm. So um, demeanor uh, and first impression um, certainly is an issue in any interaction that you have with another human being. So when you talk about judges, um, you talk about referees, you talk about magistrates, um, I definitely think, I'm, I, I don't know if I want to use the word bias. There's definitely presumptions that people hold when it comes to uh, what the role of a woman is in a family. Mm. It's presumption in terms of what the role of a man in the family is. And those presumptions, and I'm going to say those biases that they might have are sometimes um, things that are gleaned from the media, sometimes things that um, are taken from their own experiences, uh, sometimes they're cultural. Um, so all of those things are happening. There's a lot of, of things circulating, a lot of things orbiting around um, each um, situation um, that you could never really know, mm. right? Um, so it's almost a situation where uh, whenever you're presenting yourself, you just have to present the very best version of yourself, you know, as, as best you can. A lot of times people's best version of themselves is limited to what's in, in between their ears, mm. right? Um, they don't have a lot of experience. There's, there's a lack of um, sophistication. Doesn't mean that they're dumb. It means that they're ignorant. They just don't know. Mm -hmm. So they walk in and, and they think things are supposed to be a certain way. You know how many times people walk into a courtroom the very first appearance and they think the trial is happening that day? That day, yes. The first time they talk to me, they want to unload the entire history of dealings between them and the mother and the child on me within the first 10 minutes. And I have to say, well, you know, hold on a second. We're going to have time to deal with all that. How, okay. first of all, what's your name? How you doing? Right? Like, uh, you know, because mm -hmm. all this pent up frustration. So I would definitely say that there should be um, an expectation from the litigants that the person on the bench is somewhat cognizant of the, the amount of pent up frustration that people have. And a lot of times um, blame it on that, that pent up frustration uh, for the display that they're seeing mm. and not necessarily hold it against the person. Mm. That, that, that's what you would get from your very best judges, your very best referees, your very best uh, magistrates. Um, but is that what always happens? Of course not. Mm. Of course not. You know, you have um, 
you know, people who believe that, you know, and I, I probably believe a, a lot of it myself, that um, if, if a man comes in and he, uh, he has the children with him and, um, you know, you hear that the mother's MIA or in and out of the child's life, uh, immediately I think something is, something is not right with that. Mm. What kind of woman gets her, her, her children taken away? She must be raggedy. Mm. Right. And if I'm, I'm an attorney, you know, I, I, and I'm thinking like that, I can't imagine the judge being any different than me. Mm. Right. And sometimes you'll get whispers from the court officers who will tell you, you know, and you'll have a little conversation about the litigants um, and their impressions. Um, and they'll kind of echo the same things. So there's definitely presumptions. If you want to take it so far as to call it a bias, I'll go with that too. I'm not as um, um, kind as, as, as my sister in that way. Um, let's, let's, keep, let's keep pushing. You know, so, so are, there, are there biases based on the race and gender of the lawyer? So, so you know, I, let me tell you, when I, when I first went in, I, I, I felt like in order for me to have movement, I needed a white Jewish lawyer. That's what I needed. Come to find out over time, that may not have been true. But that's what I felt like in terms of leveraging the courts, because when you look around, most of the persuasions in there in terms of the, the, the lawyers for the children and everybody that's part of the, the, the uh, institution are white. And so, mm -hmm. How do you, I mean, is there, is there a bias? Does race play a part in this in terms of the, the color of your lawyer or the gender of your lawyer? I think so. Um, and I think a lot of it uh, is more adopted by the litigants than it actually exists in reality. Hmm. And that, you know, for, for, for a whole explanation of that, I would have to take you back to 1619. <laughs> and a little event that happened um, with how, you know, many of us ended up here. Right. Um, but since that time, what has happened is that we think that um, this other group's ice is colder, that the law as they tell it is different than the law that I tell, mm. which is the same law. So what often happens to us as private practitioners, and you know, I'm not speaking for Denise, but you know, speaking for myself, is that they'll go to uh, a lawyer of a different race, allow them to botch the case up, and then they'll come to me to fix it. Mm. And that is not just limited to the law. It's it, the same thing happens in medicine. Right. Um, when, when a person is looking for a doctor, oftentimes, uh, a lot of times they don't go out of their way um, for African-American doctor or, or um, a black doctor. Right. Uh, in fact, they'll say, I don't want no black doctor. Go right. get me a Jewish doctor or right. go get me this kind of doctor. Right. Um, because there is uh, that presumption that we talked about. There's that presumption that they know what they're, clearly they know what they're talking about um, better than anyone else. And a lot of times um, that's just not the reality. And you know, you know, for me, I thought it was like more of like the, the, the person having the key to the city. Right. You know, they walk in with the key, they'll let them in. But if they see, you know, someone of my persuasion, maybe they won't even hear me. 
right? And they already made a judgment and an opinion about me because there was a bias. So let me get in the door so I can at least tell my story. Well, listen, I mean, I, I would never sit here and deny that privilege exists. Okay. But a lot of that is, is demonstrated through actions. Yeah. Right? Nobody's going to come in and say, oh, okay, he's got a Jewish lawyer. Let me listen to what he's saying. Right. Um, or he's got a, you know, a white lawyer. Let me listen to what he's saying. But, you know, we, we, just because we're in court doesn't mean that we're removed from the world. Right. You know, we're just in a small bubble within the larger bubble. So the same right. thing that happened outside, they're happening in the courtroom too. Right. So um, the, the deference that uh, a person might give, and, and listen, the deference sometimes can come from the bench too, where the person on the bench might think because this person looks a certain way, they must know what they're talking about. Mm. <laughs> right? Mm. And that might come from uh, you know a judge or a magistrate or referee looks just like me. And those same... Um, misconceptions, those same diseases uh, that we're afflicted with because of our collective experience since we've been here um, play out no matter where a person is situated in, in, in the entire proceeding. Hmm. So I, 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 I would not lie and say that, you know, nah, that's ridiculous. That doesn't exist. Of course it exists. Of course it exists. But once again, just because um, a person looks a certain way, look, you know, is of a certain race. One, it doesn't mean that they know what they're doing. Um, or right. they know what they're doing any better than, than, than anyone else. I'm a witness. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what, what, what it generally means is that when they tell you a price, you ain't going to question it. Now, if I tell you- That is the thing. That is the thing. If I tell you a price, you want you want to know what my blood type is. <laughs> you want to know what I'm going to do with that money. Mm. You want to know what kind of car I drive. You want to know um, what you know what kind of watch I'm like. Like you got you got mad questions. Mm. And you want to challenge everything. Mm. You know, uh, yeah. uh, if I tell you the sky is blue, you you want to know well. How do you know is right? Like the same questions that you could have asked. More qualified. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't have all those questions. That's right. You didn't want right. So right. when you come to me now, you want to challenge everything I say. And, um, you know, it, but in that, it's no different than what happens, I'm sure, to black doctors, black architects, um, right. black principals, right? Like I'm sure as a principal, uh, when, you, when you were a principal, um, you had those same situations where Absolutely. people would challenge you all the time. So it's no different. Mm -hmm. time. No right. Different. Yeah. Right. Thanks for listening to Pushing Boundaries. Once again, my name is Sharif Rucker. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor by commenting, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know. All of these things are free and take very little effort but would mean the world to me. Thanks again and stay tuned.